Have you ever achieved some sobriety and begun to relax, only to fall again into acting out? Today's reading will address maintaining a strong sobriety on recovery support with Kevin Bergen. This is Recovery Support, and I'm Kevin Bergen, licensed psychotherapist. This show is to support those in recovery from sexually compulsive behavior and to offer that support with education, inspiration, and motivation. Let's start out today with The Problem on page 203 of the Sexaholics Anonymous White Book. The Problem. Many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw on the outsides of others. Early on, we came to feel disconnected from parents, from peers, from ourselves. We tuned out with fantasy and masturbation. We plugged in by drinking in the pictures, the images, and pursuing the objects of our fantasies. We lusted and wanted to be lusted after. We became true addicts, sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency relationships, and more fantasy. We got it through the eyes. We bought it, we sold it, we traded it, we gave it away. We were addicted to the intrigue, the tease, the forbidden. The only way we knew to be free of it was to do it. Please connect with me and make me whole, we cried with outstretched arms. Lusting after the big fix, we gave away our power to others. This produced guilt, self-hatred, remorse, emptiness, and pain. And we were driven ever inward, away from reality, away from love, lost inside ourselves. Our habit made true intimacy impossible. We could never know real union with another because we were addicted to the unreal. We went for the chemistry, the connection that had the magic because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Fantasy corrupted the real, lust killed love. First addicts, then love cripples, we took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves conning ourselves time and again that the next one would save us, we were really losing our lives. For today's podcast, I'm going to share some words of wisdom straight from the Sexaholics Anonymous White Book. I'm starting on page 145, Accentuate Positive. Negative sobriety didn't work. It was uncomfortable, dangerous, and short-lived. Quote, I was not cheating on my wife. I was not having sex with myself. I was not looking at the pictures or going to those places. Not, not, not. For months and months, I was not. Until one day, not was not enough. And I went back out there. Unquote. We discovered that unless we found what our lust was trying so unsuccessfully to fill, we were not going to make it. Either we filled the vacuum with the real thing, or we had nothing but the negative. Either we started practicing the actions of love, or we wound up headed back into that futile fabrication we called making love. Also, we found that improving our conscious union with God was impossible without improving our conscious union with others. Both relations were broken together, and both had to be healed together. It was the only way that brought us peace. We could not have one without the other. 
we who did not truly love wife or husband or children or parents or brother or sister whom we could see could not love God whom we could not see. Healing for us is incomplete without the positive sobriety of healed relations with others. Often, we see that our relational poverty and malfunctions began in childhood in a dysfunctional environment. After we are sober and in recovery for a while, many of us begin to feel the need for looking at and working on this neglected area of our lives. Doing what comes unnaturally. Love is one of the most abused words in the language. That's why we speak not of loving, but of taking the actions of love. Just as with faith, love we discovered was not a feeling, but attitude and action. We took the actions we knew we should be taking toward others because we did not feel like it. The feelings followed. Love for us is doing, doing what does not come naturally. A member is quoted as saying, Even though I knew I had to break out of myself, look at my wife and smile, I just knew I couldn't. I don't know why. But if I simply did it, the feeling of wanting to followed. Unquote. We start going to meetings and participating in the fellowship of the program before we feel we want to. We stop sexing, lusting, and resenting before we feel we can. And we start taking the right actions toward others before we feel like doing them naturally. This is the paradox of this impossible program. How can we do this when we feel so powerless and aren't sure we even want to? We have a God who works, that's why. His business is raising us out of our death. But faith without action is dead. We receive that power as we take the action, not before. A user says, quote, A hundred such incidents, and I was beginning to learn that the key to doing what did not come naturally was surrender, the key to this whole program the key to my own happiness. When I distrust my own feelings and just go ahead and do what's right, the miracle happens and I'm out of my dark hole." Unquote. Many of us discovered that once these actions become customary and incorporated in our day-to-day living, we actually begin to change. We become better people and as a result happier with ourselves and others giving up the gimmies. In previous steps, we became aware of how our natural tendency was to take from others, using them as inputs to our lives, much as we used food, drink, or entertainment. Now we start learning how to recognize and surrender this natural impulse, deny ourselves the right to misuse anyone, and start giving of ourselves with no thought of getting anything in return except our own peace of mind and freedom. The measure we give is the measure we get back. Quote, When the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, I start watering my own lawn. Unquote. Another member is quoted as saying, At first, what gave me the most practice in giving was encountering lust objects. I grew to realize that in drinking in the fantasy-intensified image of that person, I was taking, with or without consent, 
through that look of lust, I was taking something violently from that person. I had them. So I began praying for every one my eyes wanted to snatch. At first it seemed impossible. I felt like doing that about as much as... But as soon as I did it, not only did the lust vanish, but I felt this great release. I'd say anything, like, please help her, just so it was going out of me instead of my pulling her into me. It satisfied. Lusting never did. Where had I been all this time? Unquote. We are filled in the giving. We are fed as we deal out our bread to another. It's not in advance or for more than one event at a time. All along, this is what we had really been looking for, lusting for, sexing for, and taking for. By taking, we had separated ourselves from others, ourselves, and God. By giving, we found true union with others and God, and lo and behold, love itself. But it slipped in unrecognized through the back door, surprised by joy. True Union We saw that the truth revealed in the 12 and 12 applied squarely to us. Quote, The primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. The great love makers were really love cripples all along and didn't know it. Sex partners were little more than targets to be scored and materialized fantasies to be tracked down, captured, possessed, and sooner or later discarded. In romantic relationships, sex was complicated with lust or unhealthy dependency. Often, spouses, in addition to being sex objects, were also parent figures and objects of dependency. So what were our chances of learning how to relate normally to anyone when the heart of our relational apparatus was so out of kilter? We found that we were just as powerless over trying to relate rightly with others as we had been in putting down our own habit. It was part of our habit. Thus, we had to approach it the same way, using the steps, the miracle workers. When we did, we could literally watch ourselves grow into true manhood and womanhood. To illustrate, the story below reveals some of the changes one sexaholic went through in his marriage in the first several years of sobriety. This is the same member whose introduction to sobriety appears in the personal story at the beginning of this book. Single members have shared that they identify the same principles apply to all human relations. Just the beginning I began going to meetings and came off my physical drugs, sex, alcohol, tranquilizers. Then I began coming off the first of my spiritual drugs, lust. From the wife, I expected immediate, warm, overflowing gratitude and acceptance. After all, I was now sober, good, and true, wasn't I? The response I got was nothing. I kept waiting for her to enfold me with love and care. I expected her response to be as great as my newfound experience. Nothing. The ingrate, I thought. Can't you see what I'm giving up for you? Resentment flared toward her for not understanding what I was going through. That got me less than nothing. After a few weeks, then months of sobriety, she and the boy were still doing everything wrong. 
and I was back to acting toward them like I had always acted, irritable, flying off the handle at the slightest thing, rejecting, sober. Sobriety didn't bring one important change. Whenever my anger or resentment surged, instead of using it as an excuse to go sex out, I'd use it as an excuse to escape out. But the back door still got it every time. Wham! I'd go to a movie or just drive into the city to get rid of that awful feeling of inner pressure, a kind of claustrophobia. Driving or walking around the city streets was my old pattern. I just knew I had to get away from them. Scenes with the wife and boy continued in sobriety. Such scenes seemed to be the only way I knew to relate on an intimate level. Seems our sex was not really relating at all, just part of the illness. What a shock. Each big blow-up was the end. Finished. This is it. I can't take this anymore. This lasted for years, but the incidents gradually got to be less often. Somehow I learned to leave just after the battle got started and eventually before it got underway. I discovered that escaping to a meeting or to my sponsor's house was better than going out there. Progress. More of the same, only I stopped slamming the door most of the time. I launched a program of trying to get my wife to go to 12-step meetings so she would change, with or without me. Nothing. I don't need those meetings, was the short response. You do. More resentment and escape. The Sunday morning talks, me to her. It's very important for me to talk to you now, I'd say. It doesn't register that she's less than enthusiastic. Dread would be a better word. Turns out the talks are really monologues. How did she ever stand it so long? My trying to manipulate and convince her what's wrong with her. Only now I'm doing it with kindness. Well, I wasn't yelling as much anyway. Can't you see? I'd keep telling her. Looking back on it, I get the strange feeling I was doing the same thing I'd been doing in the psychiatrist office or group therapy. Egoria. Diarrhea of the ego. And whenever she'd try and express herself, I'd get angry and stomp off. It took years for this pattern to change. That was all we knew. But she slowly became gun-shy of those talks. Turns out I was simply unable or unwilling to look at myself. Though she did force me to peek inside once in a while. Maybe the program was giving me a little honesty. Then I'd have to go to a meeting or see my sponsor right afterward. The pain was so bad. I didn't know it was the healthy pain of self-awareness creeping in. I just knew it was impossible to live with that woman. Now I thank God for her courage and honesty and patience and the boys. God's gift to me, pure grace. A few years into sobriety, instead of the marriage getting better, it seemed to be getting worse. And the beautiful light that had shone in her face at the beginning of our marriage continued to fade. The joy and song dried up and blown away across the desert of our desperation. In sobriety. The close encounters of the nasty kind became less frequent, but seemed more final. Time after time, we both went away with the feeling that there was no possible solution. Then she began to see the pattern. Whenever I was in that mood, I'd apparently try to put it off on her with an attack. Usually some tremendous issue, like hair in the wash basin, 
earth-shattering. Turns out what was really at work was my cunning, baffling, and powerful lust looking for an excuse to change partners. No wonder every once in a while I'd have fantasies of her dying. Somehow she began to see that she was not the cause of my moods, that there was something else behind these attacks on her that had nothing to do with her or her, quote, transgressions. Important discovery. She began to confront me with this, and I'd close off or strike out all the more. I now see what I was doing was transferring my own wrongfulness onto another so I wouldn't have to bear it. As it dawned on her that I had been attacking her to cover what I was and what I had been doing, her anger and resentment flared to white heat. It's important to note the time scale here, the pain scale, years and yelling, running, and walking through loads of pain. Years and pain, that's what it took for us. The pain got so bad for me that I had no choice but to start working the principles embodied in our steps. And that's when things started slowly turning around. Mere sobriety, even lengthy sobriety, hadn't healed me or the marriage. Going to meetings? big deal. I had to start seeing and changing me or the pain would keep returning and the marriage keep dissolving. I was like the man the alcoholics talk about who every time he went through a certain doorway got hit over the head by a two by four but he'd still keep on going through the same doorway. The brick wall syndrome. If you run up against a brick wall keep battering it with your head. Finally, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired of clobbering myself with my own 2 by 4 ego. The principle of the tenth step was the key for me whenever I was wrong to promptly admit it. I began to make amends to my wife. Each time we'd have an argument or there was emotional pain, I'd get away somewhere and do a short written inventory on it. I began to believe what it says in the 12 and 12 that whenever I'm disturbed there's something wrong with me what was I feeling why where was I wrong then try not to remind her of her wrong say it in a note because I was afraid I'd open my big ego and hurt her again I was beginning to conceal the glorious story of how right I was to confess where I was wrong it worked I felt better I started making similar amends to the boy. I was wrong for rejecting you when I chewed you out about the misplaced tool. I got good feelings inside whenever I did this. I got stronger. I sinned against them less often. The key to my joy was seeing, admitting, and correcting the way I related to others. I had made these big grand amends as soon as I had come on the program such as, I'm sorry for all the wrong I did to you, and all that good stuff. But that never changed anything. I had always said, I'm sorry. It was the little specific daily amends that started making the big difference. I fixed the damage to the back door. I enjoyed it. I discovered I liked fixing things. I liked fixing me. I liked fixing the marriage. I had always been the one who wanted to be fixed. 
but I had to stop trying to fix her. I began taking an interest in what she was interested in, the house, her stained glass, my responsibility as a provider. All the while, I kept coming more and more off lust and my other spiritual drugs, resentment, anger, hostility, fear, dependency, judging others, people-pleasing, self-glorification. They all began to yield once I could start seeing and accepting what I really was, my defects, and taking God's action on it. After four or five years in sobriety, the difference in the marriage and family relationships was markedly better. The breakthrough had been made. Thank God, and thanks to the patience, love, and understanding of the wife and children, the older ones had long been gone out of the home. I knew it, and they knew it. No matter what happened, things would never be the same. And, as with sobriety, we still have a marriage only one day at a time. We had crossed the threshold into a new beginning. Throughout this time, I was progressively getting rid of all the old bottles I had stashed away in the cupboards of my heart, those invisible attachments to whom I knew I could always turn if I ever decided to take the out of last resort and walk out on the marriage. I hadn't been acting on them, but they were in there just in case. Had I been able to see what these still meant to me and discard them sooner, things would have gotten better sooner. Somewhere along the line, I came to a commitment of permanency with my wife, in my heart. It meant giving up the right to run to anyone else, ever, one day at a time. Instead of those dismal Sunday morning talks, we were starting to talk and touch as friends. I had just begun to glimpse my wife as an individual, had begun to see the limitless depth of what was in there, a person, unique, vulnerable, human. God was there. During periods of voluntary sexual abstinence, we came to realize that true union could not be based on sex or dependency of whatever sort. During those times, we discovered we were actually closer together on a deeper level. She discovered she didn't have to give herself sexually to earn her husband's favor. And I discovered that I was drawn to her as a person and actually preferred the warmth of non-sexual relating insofar as the fostering of our union was concerned. We still have rough times, and I'm sure there'll be more with more pain and desperation. But things are getting better and are the best ever. Paradoxically, we still have a marriage only one day at a time. Release. We give each other the right to fail. Turns out neither of us had any idea of what marriage had to offer. Words can never tell. It's like knowing my God personally. Words can never tell. I feel we're just now at the very beginning, the right beginning. Conclusions The physical and emotional state of my wife, children, cats, and the doorways have been the truest indicators of the real me. Sober is not well. It takes years of sobriety, pain, and hard work to even begin to heal a marriage.
Healing in the family begins by staying sober, going to meetings, and working the steps. It continues by staying sober, going to meetings, and working the steps. It can end by not staying sober, not going to meetings, and not working the steps. My own diseased attitudes and actions kept me looking at others negatively so I wouldn't have to see and bear my own wrongfulness. My spouse, children, other family and program members, friends and co-workers are part of my healing and recovery when I allow that to happen. Marriage is a sanctifying force both in our lives and the children's as well. And that's why, for me, the relationships didn't do it and fell short. They were rooted either in lust or unhealthy dependency. They were open-ended. There was always that out. We were cheated of having to stick with it and walk through to victory, beauty, and song. And God was not there. My spouse and children, they are God's gift through all the pain to the completion of myself as a person and member of the human family. My own attitude and recovery are the key. They open the door to recovery and spiritual life in my family and larger circle of relationships. That concludes our reading today from the S.A. White book. Now we're going to read the solution on page 204 of the S.A. White book. We saw that our problem was threefold, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Healing had to come about in all three. The crucial change in attitude began when we admitted we were powerless, that our habit had us whipped. We came to meetings and withdrew from our habit. For some, this meant no sex with themselves or others, including not getting into relationships. For others, it also meant drying out and not having sex with a spouse for a time to recover from lust. We discovered that we could stop, that not feeding the hunger didn't kill us, that sex was indeed optional. There was hope for freedom, and we began to feel alive. Encouraged to continue, we turned more and more away from our isolating obsession with sex and self and turned to God and others. All this was scary. We couldn't see the path ahead, except that others had gone that way before. Each new step of surrender felt it would be off the edge into oblivion, but we took it. And instead of killing us, surrender was killing the obsession. We had stepped into the light, into a whole new way of life. The fellowship gave us monitoring and support to keep us from being overwhelmed, a safe haven where we could finally face ourselves. Instead of covering our feelings with compulsive sex, we began exposing the roots of our spiritual emptiness and hunger, and the healing began. As we faced our defects, we became willing to change. Surrendering them broke the power they had over us. We began to be more comfortable with ourselves and others for the first time without our drug. Forgiving all who had injured us, and without injuring others, we tried to right our own wrongs. At each amends, more of the dreadful load of guilt dropped from our shoulders until we could lift our heads, look the world in the eye, and stand free. We began practicing a positive sobriety, 
taking the actions of love to improve our relations with others. We were learning how to give, and the measure we gave was the measure we got back. We were finding that none of the substitutes had ever supplied. We were making the real connection. We were home. In closing, I'd like to offer the third step prayer. It can be found on page 95 of the S.A. White Book, page 63 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, or by Googling Third Step Prayer. If you know it, please join with me. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of Thy power, Thy love, and Thy way of life. May I do Thy will always. Thank you, and you can now follow me on Twitter, where my ID is ClearHelp. And you can find my Twitter profile link on my website, kevinbergen.com. You can also email me at kbrecoverysupport at gmail.com. The Recovery Support Podcast does not promote any kind of program or fellowship, and it only informs about resources that I have found helpful to my clients. You can always refer to the show notes at recoverysupport.podbean.com. Have a terrific week and have a sober day.